0: Antonia Lloyd-Jones has uh, translated works of many of Poland's leading contemporary novelists and uh, reportage authors, as well as crime fiction, poetry, and uh, children's books. Her translation of Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead by 2018 Nobel Prize laureate Olga Tokarczuk was shortlisted for the 2019 Man Booker International Prize. For 10 years, she was a mentor for the Emerging Translators Mentorship Program and is a former co-chair of the UK Translators Association. In this episode, she spoke about her love for reading and writing, which started at an early age, working with Polish authors, organizations helping budding translators, and about her work, Stanislaw Lem's The Truth and Other Stories. Please share your feedback on this episode, either on the Spotify app or through the link provided in the show notes. You can follow Harshaniam Podcast on Spotify, Apple, or search any of your favorite podcasting apps. Welcome to our podcast, Antonia. It was such an honor to have you with us today.
1: I'm honored. It's very kind of you to invite me.
0: Now, Antonia, your father was a linguist and a professor at Oxford. What kind of influence your childhood had in steering you towards literature?
1: Well, that's right. My father was the, what they call the Regis Professor of Ancient Greek at Oxford University for 30 years from a couple of years before I was born. Um, so I grew up in this university atmosphere. And he knew a lot of languages and somehow I always had an animal interest in languages. It was always my, my party trick. I always wanted to learn languages from an early age. And of course, I was surrounded by literature in this house and books were the, the main medium fed to us. I found such a lovely thing yesterday that I wanted to share with you, which is Zadie Smith, the writer has mm. written uh, some advice for people who want to be writers. Uh, it, and it's titled 10 Good Writing Habits. And mm. I absolutely love the first one at the top of the list is this. Mm. When still a child, make yeah. sure you read a lot of books. Spend well, more time doing this than anything yeah. else. And that's it, you see. As a child, I spent more time reading books <laughs> Than anything else. And so I love her advice. I love the thought of writers looking at her advice and realizing, oh no, it's too late. I can't go Mm. back. But it's absolutely true. If you want to write well or if you want to translate well, you need to be immersed in literature of all kinds from very early in your life. And my father and mother, they both did that for us. But, But my father and I used to read books together a lot. He used to read to me, which was a kind of a very special time for both of us. And he read wonderfully. And even when he was very old and not at all well, it was still the best part of his day was when he could read to us, which he did beautifully.
0: So when did you start writing, actually?
1: Well, I can remember, that's a good question. I can remember having a, a big, being given a big book by my father, which was a, a, a book with hard covers and, and lined paper. And I started writing the stories of our cat because we had, we had cats growing up and my father had always had cats. So they were also very important. And my brother used to make up endless stories either about the cats or about the toy animals that we had, all of which had very, elaborate lives and my brother and i shared a room and he used to tell me these stories at night Mm -hmm. and i started writing down the stories about the cat and then my Mm -hmm. brother and i used to produce a sort of little newspaper which was called the Tiger Times and it was, we'd type it and uh-huh. stick it all together and then make our parents pay sixpence to buy the uh-huh. newspaper <laughs> where we uh-huh. were writing these stories about the animals and putting in drawings and photographs and things. You brought this back to me. It's a rather wonderful memory. So, um, so I suppose I started writing as soon as I could write things.
0: How many subscribers were there for your newspaper?
1: well the subscribers didn't really have much choice they were kind of hijacked (laughs) and i think i think it was just my mother and my father There were never very many editions needless to say the newspaper was came in a very exclusive edition but i can see it now i can see it my brother could talk about it too he'd remember it very well
0: your brother is a writer too
1: officially he's a children's librarian but he's a very very good cottage cartoon- actually he's a writer what am I saying that's a terrible mm. calumny my brother <laughs> has been working for some time on a wonderful children's book mm-hmm. which involves some time travel and mm-hmm. I'm very much hoping he finds a publisher for it he also is a very good cartoonist mm-hmm. he draws incredibly good cartoons and he makes up little poems and then draws pictures to go with them so yes mm-hmm. although he's not published he is Definitely a writer. (laughs) Probably more than I am.
0: You were into journalism before you got into translations, right?
1: When I started out, what I was going to do after university, I finished very young. Mm -hmm. And I'd been spending, the first time I went to Poland was during martial law in Poland, at the Mm -hmm. tail end of martial law in 1983. Mm -hmm. And I had friends of my age in Poland and I could see that, unlike me, they didn't have a great deal of choice in their lives they were facing a very difficult situation where the attempts to change the political system in Poland had failed and there had been martial law imposed and it looked as if it was a hopeless situation where the oppressive communist state would never be removed though of course and that was at the beginning of the 1980s by the end of the 1980s it had gone Mm -hmm. and everything opened up and conditions were very different but when I first went there it didn't look like that at all it was a time when people were losing hope and feeling that they might have had a chance but they'd lost it Mm -hmm. so I wanted to write about that because I felt that um, I was a very privileged person from a country with full freedom and uh, I'd had a fantastic education I had everything handed to me whereas my friends were in this situation where they really didn't know how to build a future except by leaving the country. And it's a tragic for anyone who feels they have to leave their country. Yes. Uh, as we know from the state of the world at the moment, there are so many people feeling that they've got no choice but to okay. migrate, which is a, a very difficult and, and tough choice. And I wanted to write about this because I felt the people in my own country didn't know enough about it, but I've spectacularly failed to become a journalist. And instead I became a translator, which in a way also tells people outside Poland a lot about what's happening in Poland. So in a way, I've found a different medium for for yes. communicating the same sort of things,
0: I hope. That uh, you got a great Polish writer Olga Tokarczuk into the mainstream. She was introduced to Anglophone world because of your translations. Uh, tell us about your association with her and uh, about her writings.
1: I've known Olga personally since, I suppose, the mid 1990s mm-hmm. when I first went to um, Krajanov, the village where she lives in the countryside in a part of Poland that's called Kotlina Kłodzka, the Kłodzko the Valley, mm-hmm. which is a kind of strange part of southwest Poland, slightly isolated and near the Czech border. Mm-hmm. And it's a place with a very particular atmosphere and -hmm. it's described very much in her work. So, for instance, the book called House of Day, House of Night is set there. Mm -hmm. The book called Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead is also set in this area. So she often writes about it. Mm -hmm. And, um, I went there because I knew her agent who lived nearby and he'd invited me to stay, but then I ended up staying. Near to Olga's house. And, um, so I obviously I got very interested in her work. And then I was commissioned to translate House of Day, House of Night. This was in 2000, I think. Um, but, and then I translated Primeval and Other Times, but they were with somehow they didn't take off. These books were not instant hits and it took many years and it took a lot of hard work mainly by jennifer croft Mm. olga's other main translator Mm. um who was absolutely determined and incredibly helpful to me so jennifer croft was very keen on the book that's called flights in her translation now and Jennifer was incredibly helpful because I had been trying to persuade publishers to accept Olga's work for some years. Jennifer was just very, very persistent and really opened the gates for us because she sent her samples from this book to Fitzgeraldo Editions, which was a brand new publisher in England. They'd Mm. only published about books at that point but poland was going to be the guest of honor at the london book fair because every year there's a focus country they call it market focus and so olga was coming with a delegation of polish authors as part of this promotional event and so this new very visionary publisher his name okay. is Jacques Testard, who owns and runs Fitzgeraldo Editions. He decided that it would be a good thing to publish something from Polish in the run-up this event, which was very good thinking, very strategic. Okay. So he had received information from Jennifer, and he liked very much what she'd sent. Mm-hmm. So then he chose to publish this book, and he did us an enormous favor because he also brought in an American publisher which is Riverhead, in which is part of Penguin, and also an Australian publisher, Text. Mm-hmm. So the book immediately had the three editions, um, so it could be available all over the world, and this gave it a wonderful marketing boost in and around the book fair, um, and and then Jennifer's wonderful translation won the Man Booker, as it was called then, International Prize, right. which was, that was the big liftoff. So it's it's largely, you know, Jennifer should take enormous credit for her great work there. Um, and then I then translated Drive Your Plough Over the Bones of the Dead. And mm-hmm. Jennifer then translated The Books of Jacob. And these have been published by the same people. And I have now translated the Impusium, which is her last novel. And that will be out with the same publishers next year. I'm not quite sure when, but uh, no. <laughs> sometime in the spring or early summer. So, and they are going to reissue my old translations, which will make them much more easily available and will give them more marketing. So now Olga really does exist big time like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's an extraordinary writer. She's Her work is so varied. And I'm, I'm so grateful that Jennifer, who'd fallen in love with her work mm-hmm. early in her career, um, contacted me as someone who'd already been working on her uh, to tell me that she was interested in translating her. And I was so impressed by Jennifer's work. And I thought this is wonderful that someone to share this with and we, we get on very well. We're friends. And it's actually been a very healthy and good thing because mm-hmm. Olga's books are so different. I say she's like Stanley Kubrick. Everything mm-hmm. she produces is just completely unrelated to the last thing. I mean, there are connections, obviously, but, mm-hmm. but her books vary hugely. So, They probably, you know, it seems to me to make sense that she would have more than one translator Uh because different people respond more more effectively to different books. And that seems to be working for us (laughs) so Uh 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 far. And I I just wanted to tell you because I'm really surprised. When you asked me to be on your podcast and I knew that you wanted me to talk a bit about Olga Tokarczuk's work. I thought I would check and see what Indian languages it's been translated into. And it's really very little. So there's a translation into Hindi by Maria Puri, who I've Mm -hmm. met, and then Shafa, which is a book of short stories, Mm -hmm. uh, the the wardrobe in English, two translations into Sinhala, so Mm. not Indian, but Sri Lankan language. It's not Indian, but Sri Lankan. Mm-hmm. And those were done through English by a man named Rash- Rashmika Mandawala, who's who contacted me about it when he started work. And then there are two in Mulelam. Yeah. Don't yeah. know who did those. Done directly from the Polish. But if mm-hmm. there are any translators into Indian languages out there listening to this, there's a big gap here. You should, if you translate from English, you can translate from the English or you can translate from other languages. Ideally,
0: please go and learn Polish. About uh, literary translations from Polish into English, are there any specific uh, indie presses or organisations which are supporting this effort?
1: The independent publishers who take more of an interest in Polish literature are the are the ones who take an interest in all translated literature mm-hmm. so it's not that there's anyone with a specific interest in Polish really mm-hmm. um i tend to find that there are some publishers who are going to be more interested than others mm-hmm. so in britain for instance we have maclehose press which is a very good and long standing publishing company and um we have Fitzcarraldo Editions, which I already mentioned, and we have um, Pushkin Press. Mm-hmm. Those are the perhaps the ones that come to mind the quickest, although there are plenty of others. In the United States, there is also some very good publishers, such as Archipelago mm-hmm. and Seven Stories. And... There's a brand new publishing outfit here called Linden Editions, which is going to do two Polish books among its first three. And then, for instance, we have some, uh, independent publishers who do specialize by area. So there's an absolutely wonderful publishing company called Tilted Axis, started so you, by uh, Deborah yeah. Smith, who yes. is the most incredible person. Yeah. She, learned Korean and started translating Korean and then translated Han Kang's The Vegetarian mm-hmm. and won the Man Booker International Prize and started up a publishing company, which is mm-hmm. not what most young people do <laughs> in their no, back room. But, and she but, decided there was a gap in the market and yeah. has specialized all along in Asian, very broadly speaking, mm-hmm. um, publications. And that is just the most incredible thing. So you have, um, some very good translators from Indian languages there, for instance. So Daisy Rockwell is pub, has yes. published books with them who translates from Hindi and Urdu. Yeah. Arunabhasena, who translates from Bengali. I'm sure you know him. Yeah. <laughs> He's a wonderful person. So that's, uh, if anyone's interested in what's happening in terms of Asian South Asian literature translated into English do have a look at their website mm-hmm. tilted axis is very special and Perfect. doing great things uh, and then when it comes to organizations that um one thing that's a huge advantage if you're translating from a language that's not as mainstream as French or Spanish or Chinese perhaps is mm-hmm. if you your, um, well, I don't know what happens with Chinese, but country where that language is spoken has any kind of de- dedicated organization that mm. exists to promote their literature abroad. Mm. That's very, very helpful because, for instance, in Poland, there's something called the Book Institute. And this is a state funded organization that exists to promote literature at home, within the country, to promote literacy, but also to promote Polish literature around the world. And that means that publishers and translators have access to grant money, and they can apply, the translators can apply for money to pay for, the translation of sample texts to show potential publishers. Oh. And then if a publisher buys the rights to a Polish book and wants to publish it, they can apply for at least some of the cost towards oh. translation, which is very, very helpful when you know that there is some, potentially, there is some financial support for a translation. Of course, publishers love that because it's very expensive to... to publish a translation and Mm -hmm. often the publisher is buying a book that they can't read that they don't have a full idea about so they're taking a bit of a risk they have to pay for the translation which is expensive Mm -hmm. um publishing costs a lot of money and marketing so you know publishers are not um (laughs) charities (laughs) they're businesses so um i always try to explain this to emerging translators if they want to interest the publisher in a particular book, they have to think about what they're presenting to that publisher from the publisher's point of view and think of it as a sort of business prospect because the first question in a publisher's head is, can I sell this? Am I going to lose money if I publish this? Or will I perhaps make a great profit? They have to think like that. They're not thinking, oh, this is the greatest book ever written, I must publish it. They're thinking, is this a great book and can I sell it?
0: (laughs) Any organizations uh, which are supporting translations from South Asia?
1: Yes, I'm absolutely thrilled about this. Daniel Hahn is Uh a powerhouse and he is our God in my world started up so many initiatives for the translation world he's a remarkable person so energetic and tireless and Daniel Hahn and Jason Grunbaum whom I mentioned before who's a Mm. professor at at Chicago they have somehow found a sponsor who has very generously donated the money for the Mm. SALT the South Asian Literature in Translation Program Mm. which is supporting mentorships for people who want to translate um, It's into English. It's the literar- literature of South Asia to be translated into English. Mm-hmm. And there'll be very good people mentoring for that. Mm-hmm. So that's an absolutely wonderful project and very exciting. So if anybody listening to this is yeah. an emerging translator into English from any Indian language, please check out the SALT project. In fact, there's there's another project that, that would be of interest to emerging translators in India, which is the American Literary Translators Association runs a series of mentorships also. They have an annual mentoring program. And they're offering a lot of Indian languages this year. So there's a mentorship with Arunava Sina, uh for translators uh from Bangla, mm-hmm. with Daisy Rockwell from Hindi, uh Jayasri Kalatil from Malayalam, mm-hmm. Dut for Malayalam, mm-hmm. Nirupama for Punjabi, Karani Baraka for South Asian poetry of any mm-hmm. kind, then Urdu, the mentor is Musharraf Ali Faruqi. Uh And there's also a Tamil mentorship. Kellyan Raman, if you are listening to this and you're wondering how to get mentored, do look at the American Literary Translators Association. The website is www.literarytranslators.org slash mentorships.
0: You offered mentorship and you had your mentees uh, and I believe they are doing some great work in translating uh,
1: I was a mentor for 10 years. Mm -hmm. It was an absolutely wonderful experience for me. When I started out, there was a much older translator who'd helped me and taught me a great deal about not only how to hone my craft, but also how to persuade publishers to take an interest in me. He was called Michael Glennie. Mm -hmm. And I've always been very grateful to him and Mm -hmm. felt I needed to give something back. So I was very interested in mentoring some years ago. And uh, Daniel Hahn, the irrepressible mm-hmm. Daniel Hahn, had mm-hmm. just started up a mentorship program in Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I said, me, me, me. <laughs> <laughs> and then I explained that I could get money from the Polish Cultural Institute to pay for this because they mm-hmm. were very interested in finding ways to train translators. Mm-hmm. So we managed to um, put this in place. In those days, the project was run by the British Centre for Liter- Literary Translation. It's now run by the National Centre for Writing, which is based mm. in Norwich, in Britain, and they mm. they still have the mentorship programme. Many years later, um, and I'm I'm now what I call a grand mentor because mm. I passed my mentoring to one of uh-huh. my very good what we call mentees because we don't have a better word mm. um, for the person <laughs> receiving the mentoring, yeah. um, Sean By, who is mm. now mentoring other new translators. So I did this for 10 years and a number of my, you can't win them all, but a number of my, I think about seven or eight of my former mentees have been publishing work and have carried on at some level producing mm-hmm. translations from Polish. Um, Sean is the most prolific and he's been doing very well and has been winning prizes. He's got a, a very good book, out by Nikolai Grinberg, which I highly recommend. It's called I Want to Say Sorry, But I Don't Know Who to Say Sorry To, I think, Uh in English. The experiences of Jewish people in Poland. um, It's written Uh as fiction, but it's perfectly believable, all of it. And I think the stories are very often have turned out to be um, true about people who are... um, survivors of the Holocaust or the children of survivors of the Holocaust and what it's like to be in that category, which is a very specific way of life and affects a person's life in some very unusual ways. And Mikolai Grinberg is a very sensitive writer on this topic. Kate Webb's book coming out soon, which is a book of short stories called White Nights by Ursula Honek, was also a debut writer in Poland. And that's very exciting. So that's just about to be promoted in Britain. And I'm very proud of Kate for having translated that book. Um, then I've sometimes co translated with my mentees. So I did a book not so long ago with Zosia Krasodomska Jones, who'd been my mentee. And it's a, a book about Albania. In the communist era. It's a very difficult book by a writer called Margot Raymer. It's a book called Mud Sweeter Than Honey. And it's a book of reportage about yeah. the experiences of people who were imprisoned or otherwise oppressed during the Hoxha communist regime in Albania. Mm-hmm. And she's a very, she also writes fiction and she, She's very good at interlacing her texts with images which are just very beautifully written and tell you something about life in that country at that time. So, um, no, I'm very proud of my mentees. I always learn a great deal from them. Mm-hmm. Just today, I was was I, I wrote to one of them who had been helping me very much because at the moment I'm compiling an anthology of short stories. And I had recently seen my mentee, um, Jess Mitchell, Uh who is based in Harvard in the United States. But actually this year, she's in Katowice in Poland for the year doing Uh her research. Uh And she um, came up with some very good ideas for my anthology because I've been trying to find interesting stories with a Jewish theme. I've been trying to find interesting stories by women whose work has been forgotten and she sent me some wonderful suggestions so we were emailing today and we're hoping to co-translate a book together which is a um by a writer called Yeji Pilch who is sadly died rather young a few years ago but it's a very very funny book about an academic's efforts to pursue women who run rings around him and and show him up for the Silly man who <laughs> So <laughs> I'm hoping that we're going to be doing that together because it's wonderful writing.
0: Now that brings me to the question uh, about the translation projects that you're currently working on. What are the projects that you're currently working on? Well, I'm up
1: to my ears in this anthology, uh, which okay. is going to be the Penguin Book of Polish Short Stories. Um, mm. And Anthologies are a very difficult thing to work on because I was, I was very lucky. I was given the commission to compile this anthology, but there are always limitations such as small budgets and, uh, only so much space. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying very hard to show a big cross section of Polish literature for the past hundred years mm-hmm. and, um, to show the work of other translators too. So, um, there's going to be some texts which have already been translated and appeared elsewhere. Some that have been specially commissioned by various translators, including, for instance, a story by Olga Tokarczuk, which Jennifer Croft is translating for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one of my mentees, Eli- Eliza Marciniak and Sean By, mm-hmm. uh, two former mentees are translating for me so mm-hmm. far. Mm-hmm. And then I'm translating some of it myself. And what's tricky is that I wanted to include quite a lot of writers whose work has been overlooked in translation, and particularly women writers. And Mm. it's very interesting when you start researching something like this, you find these enormous gaps in publishing. And I'm finding that women from the communist era in Poland have largely been forgotten or were the publication was very limited so I found a lot of old anthologies in Polish from that era and there'll be 40 stories in the book and maybe one or two by women and you think hold on that just cannot be (laughs) that imbalance is impossible so I've been searching and searching and I've come up with some extraordinary things, mainly just by asking other people who've come up with wonderful ideas. Um, And I'm really hoping that I'll be able to give some of these people a voice. Um, And part of my excitement about it is that when I started learning Polish, which is 40 years ago, I found an anthology that had been put together by a Polish writer called Maria Konsevicova, who lived in England for some time. And it's called The Modern Polish Mind, and it's a collection of short stories, excerpts from books, quite a lot of different things. And I read this book, which was published the year I was born, published 61 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I read it when I was starting out, and it was hugely inspirational for me. And I explored the work of the writers in this book. I wanted to know more. And here I am now compiling my own anthology, and Maria Kuntsevichova is in it. And several of the writers that she introduced me to through that book as well are in my collection. Um Still not published enough in English, evidently. Yes. But I'm really hoping that someone out there, someone young, mm-hmm. the me of, of now, as I was 40 years ago, <laughs> And <laughs> um, we'll pick this up and think, oh, wow, I-, I want to know more about this. I wish I could translate these writers. And we'll pick up the baton and run on with it. <laughs> so that, that's my hope for this book, is that it will inspire readers, potential translators, researchers, all sorts of people, writers too.
0: Yeah. Uh, what does uh, translation mean to you personally?
1: Well, it means I have an excuse to spend all day reading books and, and playing with words and doing word puzzles. It's a great excuse. I used to have a sensible mm-hmm. job. I used to work in a bank as an editor. Mm-hmm. And I used to produce publications to tell people about the economies in, in Central and East Euro- Eastern Europe. And I could tell you all about inflation rates and uh, what industries were doing well in what country. That uh, earned yeah. me a Living, which Mm -hmm. then allowed me to do nothing but my hobby because Mm -hmm. it's really very difficult to earn a living as a literary translator. I would advise anyone to try unless they have a lot of money or a a very rich friend who (laughs) pays for them or if they have another job.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And I, that was my other job. So I, for a long time, worked very, very hard doing that in an international bank. And then, um, so in a way, I was a journalist, but I was an editor mm-hmm. more than anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was translating in my spare time. Mm-hmm. But then when I got the opportunity to do nothing but translate, I thought, okay, this is great. I'll make my hobby into mm-hmm. my job. Mm-hmm. It's because I enjoy it so much. So essentially, translation is my escape.
0: So what's your advice for uh, budding translators?
1: Make sure, if you do start out as a translator, Mm -hmm. become part of the translation community and find out what your rights are. Because I used to be the co-chair of the British Translators Association. Mm -hmm. And we we try very hard to do through organization. Mm -hmm. A very good piece of advice, if you're an emerging translator, Mm -hmm. is to try to join in with the translation community because there's a great deal of good support out there. And the Mm -hmm. thing is that, for instance, I used to be the co-chair of the British Translators Association, Mm -hmm. and that sort of an organisation is very good for providing advice about your rights. And what we try to do is we try to teach all the younger translators who are starting out Um, how to negotiate contracts and what to expect, what they should expect to be paid, what Mm -hmm. contract terms they should expect to have, and how to insist on certain things so that they don't lose their copyright or um, so that they get paid royalties on sales and so that uh, if their book's made into a film, they get money for that and so on. We try to teach people to protect themselves and not just be paid a fee and told to go away and have no control over their work. So I w- And the way to learn all of that is, I mean, the mentoring programs are very good, but there are various wonderful organizations that can help any tra- emerging translator into English. So there's something called the Emerging Translators Network, which is a discussion group. And anyone who's working in literary translation can join and you can ask any questions you like. And the people there have more or less experience and will give you advice and help you and point you in the right direction towards the information that you need. Um, there's also, um, uh, again, the American Literary Translators Association, uh, looking at their website and, and perhaps joining that and seeing what they can do is very helpful in britain we have the translators association which is part of the society of authors and if you've already got a contract you can join that and get very good advice Um, in the united states there's something called the authors guild which has a very good website that anybody can access you don't necessarily have to be a member and they have fantastic information on explaining how literary translators contracts work explaining how to negotiate how to insist on, on the terms that you want. So it's all out there. There's lots of wonderful information that's available and translators. on the whole. I think it's partly to do with the fact that what they do involves a bit of modesty because they're making somebody else look good. <laughs> they're very generous <laughs> and very sharing and it's it's a very communal profession where people help each other and will pass on advice. And there are things like, some pages on Facebook. There's a true translation page, and you can ask any question you like, and somebody will help you and answer you. So, I highly recommend that becoming part of the community, yes. knowing your rights, empowering yourself by by clueing up.
0: That's that's great information. Great information. Uh, now we will come to the book and the author, Stanislaw Lem. Uh, the book is a uh, true. Truth and the Other Stories. Uh, please introduce us to Stanislaw Lem, the author.
1: The Truth and Other Stories. This is the book. Yes. Um, Stanislaw Lem was a Polish author who um, was extremely successful in the communist era in Poland, mm-hmm. and. A large part of this was down to the fact that he wrote science fiction, which was a completely new genre in Polish literature. They had a little bit before, but not to the extent
0: yeah.
1: that, um, that he extended. He made it into a big genre there. Mm. And his work—it's—it's it's an extraordinary thing, it's in a way, for a writer in a country where literature was censored and where you couldn't always say directly what you wanted to. Science fiction is a genre where you can write around the censor, which he quite often did. You could write something slightly cryptic or analogous, or allegorical, I mean, um, mm-hmm. and say things that you weren't supposed to say, but through another planet, yeah, but it, yeah, yeah, it wasn't yeah. obvious. Yeah. Um So he wrote a wide range of books. He wrote a lot of novels and short stories. And perhaps the best-known novel is Solaris, is the best-known in English, which has been made into a film twice, mm-hmm. um, the famous Russian film by Tarkovsky, and then there was a more recent one with George Clooney in it. But um, I highly recommend the actual novel in Bill Johnston's translation, which is an e-book, mm-hmm. um, there's a there's another version available, but that was translated through French. So if if you can get the ebook translated by Bill Johnston of Solaris, I recommend that. It's a wonderful book mm-hmm. and quite frightening. Often his science fiction is quite sinister, and that mm-hmm. this is uh, uh, Solaris is about some astronauts scientists who are sent to this planet. That they have to investigate and they, they can't go onto the planet because it's a kind of strange moving sea, but they're on a spaceship nearby and this planet exerts an influence on them and makes them materialize memories that they have. And it's a very clever idea and it's brilliantly done in the book. And then some of his, so some of his stories are, are, are these very futuristic scientific Tales of kind of psychological dramas mm. and, um, very readable and powerful. Then mm. some of his stories are very funny. He wrote a series of, uh, of two series, one called pierx the Pilot, and other, the other is the, um, Space Diaries of Ion Tichy. Mm. And these are stories with the same main character, but having strange adventures around the universe. Um, and then sometimes he's an extraordinary writer because he was able to predict all sorts of things in the future. And this set of stories that I've translated, uh, The Truth and Other Stories, which was published a couple of years ago by Massachusetts Institute of Technology Press. This book is really a gathering together of the stories that hadn't been translated and published in English before and many of them date back to the 1950s and it was pretty difficult to translate because in many cases they are um, very technical and he was writing about mad computers that wanted to take over the world but uh, they'd be huge the size of a room (laughs) and um i had to do when i was translating it i had to check a lot of this technology and find out exactly how to word these things because i don't know anything about electroengineering or whatever was involved (laughs) um uh but and they might seem rather dated now in places but at the same time he was predicting all sorts of things Uh, very Mm -hmm. clear he predicted the internet and mobile phones and all sorts of things very well Mm -hmm. and then he, he um, sometimes writes about robots mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. there are two stories in particular in this book mm-hmm. with, uh, which feature robots. So mm-hmm. um, one of them is a very funny, short, very short story. It's called The Enigma. Yep. An Enigma, sorry, mm-hmm. An Enigma in my translation. Mm-hmm. An Enigma, it's set in the distant future when human beings no longer exist and are completely forgotten about and robots run the world and are, are the only species mm-hmm. and a very venerable robot who's like a sort of monk in a cell this character and and another monk-like robot comes to see him and tells him about this terrible anathema that somebody has written a a, a heretical work claiming that sometime in the distant past there were these strange jelly-like squidgy beings that invented robots Mm -hmm. and what a terrible thing to suggest (laughs) when of course God made the robots Mm -hmm. (laughs) and the older um, venerable robot says well you know perhaps there's some truth in it and it shocks this younger disciple with this heretical statement and it's very very funny because Lems invented all sorts of funny words for how robots would describe something they've never seen and only know of as a sort of mythology human beings so I had fun translating that it's full of funny made-up words Uh, and then there's a story called The Hunt in this book And the hunt was lost for many years and Mm. partly because Lem wrote another story called The Hunt. So Mm. there was some confusion. And this one was found in a file a few years ago by his son or his secretary or somebody Mm. who realized that ah, this is something we've forgotten about. So I was commissioned to translate it. Um, Mm. And, It's an extraordinary story because it's from the point of view of someone who is being pursued across a very wild landscape and they're being chased by men with dogs. So you're seeing it all from their point of view, from the point of view of the quarry. And at first, you're not quite sure if this is some prisoner who's on the run or somebody trying to escape from Some sort of evil forces, but that's how you feel. Gradually, there are hints that make you think that this person who's running is not quite ordinary. And eventually you realize that perhaps this isn't a human being. However, this is a very sophisticated robot with a great deal of human emotion even so you can't help identifying with this character and wanting him to get away but it's very clever the way it's written so that i mean i've rather spoilt it for you because i've told you (laughs) what you don't instantly realize but gradually gradually dawns on you is that this character is perhaps superhuman or somehow um uh like part human, part robot, Um, but it's very cleverly written so that you only realise that very gradually.
0: There is an indication in one of the reviews that uh, it is written in the sense that uh, he is trying to run away from holocaust.
1: I mean, a lot of people have interpreted Lem himself was a Holocaust survivor, and he he was in L- what's now Lviv in Ukraine, but was then Lvov in Poland, and he was very reluctant ever to talk about his war experiences. He wouldn't. He, he was interviewed by various journalists who wrote uh, biographies of him, but he wouldn't talk about this, and it was a topic he couldn't. About. But since his death, there's been quite a lot of research into what actually happened to him. There's a very good biography by Wojciech Orlinski, and there's a second one by a woman called Agnieszka Gajewska, Mm -hmm. and she goes into a lot of detail about this. And what they've also done in these biographies is explain where he has talked about these things allegorically in his fiction so now of course people are looking for this everywhere I'm not sure you could say that in the hunt it is absolutely that I I don't I wouldn't swear to it Um, Mm -hmm. but there are works of his where there are obvious direct links with his wartime experience
0: Now, could you please read a paragraph or two from any of the stories that you like in both Polish and English?
1: So I can read you from a couple of paragraphs from The Hunt in which perhaps you can perceive the little clues that are telling you that this isn't actually a human being, but also the little clues that are telling you that This is somebody with some very human characteristics. As he looked at the mountains again, it crossed his mind that this must be the last time he'd ever see them. And although he'd never cared about them, although he didn't know them, had never been in them, and had nothing to seek among the rocks, it was only this thought, as if by Ricochet, that made him aware. He had just minutes ahead of him, hours at most, of looking, hearing and moving. And that it was the truth. He felt cold, shining mercury abruptly flooding his chest and raced ahead. He had reached a truly incredible speed. He'd never run like this before. He leapt in bounds of four or five yards, flinging himself into the air, flying over the grass. His shadow foreshortened at his feet as he landed and rebounded for the next jump. Would anyone be able to run like that? He could feel the pressure in his temples, sparks flashing in his eyes and warmth in his chest. Not yet the heat heralded unconsciousness, but it was vile and unnatural. So if I read that in Polish. Popatrzył jeszcze raz na góry. na że widzi je pewno ostatni raz. I chociaż nigdy mu na nich nie zależało, chociaż ich nie znał, nie był w nich, miał czego szukać wśród skał, dopiero przez trza jakby rykoszetem, doszło go to, że ma przed sobą jeszcze minuty, najwyżej godziny patrzenia, słyszenia ruchu i że to jest prawda. Poczuł niespodzianie, rozlewająco się w piersi, zimną błyszczącą rtęć, i pognał przed siebie. Rozwinął szybkość, wręcz niewiarygodną, nigdy jeszcze tak nie biedny. Sadził cztero i pięciometrowymi susami, wyrzucał się w powiecie, leciał na trawą, ze skurczonym cieniem u nóg, dondował i odbił się do następnego skoku. Chik Tok Kolbek umiał by tak biegsz. Trzew w skroniach ucisk, oczach pulsujące iskry, w pierszach nie gorąc jeszcze, który zapowiada nieprzytomność, ale ciepło, stresne i nienaturalne.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much for your time and it was such an enjoyable conversation. Thank
1: you very, very much for having me as your guest and good luck with the rest of the project.